0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Living Water, where we are looking at Bible stories and Bible verses through the lens of water or the lack of it to see if we can see some old stories in a new way. And in this episode, I want us to look at the shortest verse of the Bible, which is Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I think pretty much everyone knows that this is the shortest verse, and I do have some history with this verse. Um, as, As hard as it is to believe when I was a child and fifth grade, uh, Alabama public schools, on Fridays during uh, during the first part of the first period, our teacher would ask us to recite a Bible verse. Hard, hard to believe that we did this in public school, but we did. We would be asked to recite a Bible verse on Fridays, and if you ever forgot a Bible verse or it snuck up on you or you blanked, you could always go to Jesus' wept, And I did that many, many times. Hey, technically, it's a verse, right? Well, this short verse actually reveals one of the more Mind blowing ideas communicated to us by God through Scripture. So I want to recap the story, what leads up to this, the verse Jesus wept, and then we'll read a little bit of it. It happens in John chapter 11 when Jesus receives word uh, from his three friends or or actually two friends on behalf of their brother, Mary and Martha, on behalf of Lazarus. Jesus has got three friends in, in Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, I need to take a moment before I go any further and give you a contrast between John's gospel and the first three gospels, because this is going to make a big deal in a minute. So remember the first three Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all written with the same point of view. They're called the synoptics, and this means that almost all of Mark in its entirety is found within Matthew and Luke, and then they've got some additional information, which is to say that most of the first three Gospels happen in the Galilee. It happens at a different place. John's Gospel, by contrast, happens in Jerusalem. It happens—it's an urban Gospel, and even happens with a different festival. Now, Jesus would say the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? Uh, He never really had a home, but he did have, in the first three Gospels, a base of operations in Capernaum, and it would be the house of Simon Peter. Uh, Jesus healed uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. It was his first miracle in Mark's Gospel, and then he would return to that house again and again that house would be the place where they would think about things or he would explain parables it was it was the place where he could go up there well he also had a house in jerusalem and that would be these three friends martha mary and lazarus their house in um in jerusalem would be their base of operations and they love jesus and jesus loves them to the point that they send jesus a note and all they have to say is this lord he whom you loves is ill. They don't have to spell it out. It's just like Lazarus needs his boy Jesus, so he should come running. Okay, here's where water plays into this. Um, Lazarus is dying, and actually Lazarus will die. And in a world with very, very little water, they had a very specific burial custom, which would use this hot and dry climate uh, to their advantage and also to make it hygienic. Uh, When someone would die, uh, they would put them in a cave, a burial place, on a shelf, and then leave their body for a year. And they would come back uh, after that year and collect their bones. And if it were before the exile, which is that period 600 years before Jesus' birth that we've talked about again and again, if it were before that event, they would put those bones in a shaft within that tomb, that cave, and that's what they were called in the Old Testament, being gathered unto your ancestors. Uh, After the exile, they began to see themselves as individuals before God, so they would take those bones and put them in a box. But here they used the lack of water and a hot climate uh, to make that process work for them, uh, to speed it up, to make it very hygienic, if you will, in in a way that they would take care of their dead. And I've said some more about this in other podcasts when I compare the burial uh, the burial practices in Israel versus burial practices in Egypt with burial that is unadorned and simple and more concerned with the living in the today than the afterlife. As, as a Hebrew would say, uh, the earth is made for responsibility, the heavens are made for mystery. However, uh, Jesus doesn't come right away, and Lazarus is dead. In fact, He's only two days away from them when he gets the letter, but he waits, and he's dead for four days by the time that Jesus arrives, which is a mystery. Four days is a mystery. Now, I I will say that that Many people have sort of pondered why the four days, if that were symbolic. Uh, uh, perhaps Jesus wanted to make certain that he was really dead so that he could raise him uh, as a sign of some sort. I think a local custom is a possibility here. Uh, the local custom is that the, the soul would hover over a body within this tomb, within the cave, for three days, and then after the third day, uh, would go away, would go away forever. I mean, it was just sort of a sort of a local wives' tale. And this fourth day arrival of Jesus may be a way to show us definitively that he didn't simply resuscitate him from a coma, but he really was raised from the dead. Well, okay, that's the, that's the backdrop. Hey, let's read the initial interaction. This is John chapter eleven, beginning with the twentieth verse. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died." But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, She went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and calling for you. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus began to weep. Or, as the King James would say, Jesus wept. Lots of sermons have been preached, and rivers of ink have been written on the reason why Jesus cried that day. And many have said that he cried because the people around him had no faith, but I suspect more. One clue is verse 33. We're told that Jesus was, quote, greatly disturbed and deeply moved. Moved, a specific word in the Greek language that involves snorting of all things or an involuntary groan of displeasure. Now, I want to pause here and remind you that John's gospel was written later than the other's and it was written for Greek-speaking Romans who lived far from this world of Judea and tombs and, and, and Bethany and, and Jesus' friends. They also would think that this was absolutely nonsensical because they know from the very beginning of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet he loves Lazarus so much that he groans for him. He groans in sadness over his death. Greek-speaking Romans who lived in a world of marble gods uh, to whom you simply just paid your money and recited an incantation, this would be nonsensical that God cries when we cry or God feels when we feel. That's the mind-blowing assertion here to say that Jesus wept. Jesus wept because he loved him, and God weeps because God loves us. There is no circumstance in our life that God is not feeling for us and with us. So now let's pick back up the story and see what happens next. This is in verse 38, after Jesus cries. Then Jesus, greatly again disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out and his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him, let him go. Now, I have a relationship with the the verse Jesus wept but I also have a relationship with this story, and it happened in Vacation Bible School. Oh gosh, early in my time here at St. Luke's, we, I just arrived, and I was in charge of telling us this story at Vacation Bible School, and we happened to have this very tall assistant minister named Matt, and he was going to be Lazarus in the tomb, and I was going to call him out. So we took Matt, and we wrapped him up, and we didn't have any grave clothes, but we had a lot of toilet paper. So we wrapped him up in toilet paper, wrapped around his head, and kind of made him like a mummy. And I put him in a a refrigerator box tomb, and I called, and I, and I had all the children around, and I called, Lazarus, come out. And Matt came out of the box, and the children began to scream. Oh, they screamed. Matt tried to make it better. Uh, all the children screamed even harder. They were third and fourth graders, three-year-olds rather. It was terrible. So I have children will tell me that they would not come to St. Luke's for years after that uh, reenactment in Vacation Bible School. I never did it again. However, This story is not a scary story. It is a profound story. Unbind him, let him go. This, too, is a profound verse because there are many ways for us to be bound, and there are many ways for us to be dead and raised. You know, I like to say that if the Bible tells us anything, is that we cannot live by our appetites because our appetites can bind us and they can eat us alive. Our appetites can hold us back, our appetites can separate us from other people, and our appetites can make us feel dead inside when God wants a life for us. But it's not just a metaphor here either. Lazarus was really dead. And what I want you to consider here is that Lazarus was really dead and now is really alive. But Lazarus is going to have to die again, which is part of the mystery and the wonder of this scene. Lazarus has now been raised from the dead only to live a mortal life, which means that he's going to die again, which means, drumroll please, that death doesn't define us. Death doesn't define us. Our relationship with Jesus defines us. Our, our reality as children of the King, uh, we live forever. Well, we could stop right there, except if we keep reading, we're going to realize that the consequences for this amazing story, the consequences for Jesus' tears, and consequences for Jesus' activity of raising Lazarus from the dead to show us that death is only an, an example of how we live you see, from that day forward, if you keep reading John chapter 11, we will learn that the council decides now to put him to death. This will set the wheels in motion of his passion, uh, the passion of Jesus Christ. This will set in wheels in motion of arrest and betrayal and a show trial. A crucifixion before the, before the end of the day on a Passover and right, and then an empty tomb uh, later on the other side. But it all starts with Jesus as a threat to power. This raising Lazarus from the dead is a threat to the council in the city. And hey, power is another appetite. If things bind us and hold us back from living fully the life that God asks us to live, uh, there are many ways to be dead, and power is one of these. So if you keep reading the chapter, what you learn is the sentence of death is begun by a meeting of the Sanhedrin in response to the word of this event. Word has gotten from Bethany, which is only two miles from Jerusalem, uh, that Jesus has done something that no one has ever seen before, raised his friend Lazarus in the tomb four days, which proves he's fully dead uh, from the dead. So the Sanhedrin is a supreme court of the nation with 71 members, and it's headed by Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the high priest He's been the high priest for 18 years under the Romans, which means that he is wily and practical and ruthless. And in John chapter 11, verse 50, Caiaphas reminds the council, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man to die for the people than have a whole nation destroyed. And so the passion begins, which still leads us to another mystery, a bit of a mystery. You see, the first three Gospels that we've we've had a comparison with earlier give a different reason for the passion of Jesus, which is the overturning of the money changers in the temple. Now, I've got to say, whether it's John's reason or Matthew, Mark, and Luke's reason, what you've got to say is that Jesus was enacting political theater the last week of his life, and I'll explain. I've got my own story. On a morning run in Jerusalem, I was running a a route around the base of the Temple Mount, and I looked across the Kidron Valley at the Garden of Gethsemane, which would be the route of Palm Sunday, and I finally got it. I mean, standing at the base of the Temple Mount and looking across that valley, you can see a mile or more. And if Jesus were riding a donkey, there would be plenty of time for a parade and palms and shouts of Hosanna to the king uh, to, to fall into place and for the excitement to build and be completely electric by the time you get to the temple gate. In their world, a general would ride a donkey to signify that the battle was done. And I got to tell you, if you're ever walking in that part of Jerusalem, it is so hilly and so steep, it's a lot easier to go on foot than to ride anything. But a general or a king would ride a donkey to tell the people around that the battle was finished. A general or a king would ride a war horse to mean that the battle was not finished, that the war needed to be completed. And no doubt, when they saw Jesus on the on the on the back of a small animal, a peaceful animal. They were thinking of something that had happened just 160 years before Jesus' birth, which was the arrival of a hero named Judah Maccabee. Judah Maccabee was a priest warrior who had overthrown the, the, the Greek-speaking uh, rulers of the temple, the people who had defiled it with Hellenistic ideas and idols and and pork and anything else that that. that they could think would be wrong, violating the Ten Commandments, Judah Maccabee would purify their nation, purify their religion, and purify their temple. And the celebration of Hanukkah uh, commemorates that to this very day. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in looking like Judah Maccabee up until the time he enters the temple gates, he doesn't purify the temple. Rather, he overturns the money changers in the temple i want to explain to you that money changing would have would have been seen in Jesus day as a legitimate business if you're if you're traveling from far far away especially outside of the bounds of judea you would have a coin with it that has a face the face of the emperor and the temple the temple tax needed to be paid with a coin that's anti-iconic, meaning no face so that it doesn't violate uh, that commandment of a graven image so money changers, it performed an important service. They also sold birds for the sacrifice. You can't carry a bird five days, right? You can't, you can't carry two doves in a sack, and so you could buy those things here. And so it was an important marketplace, an important service, according to those of the temple. Now, what, what God feels like, at least what Jesus says on, on Palm Sunday, is that it had become tawdry. In other words, God's house had become a, a marketplace or a den of robbers, which is actually a quotation From the book of Jeremiah, again, Jesus is enacting political theater. All that is to say is that, yes, it is a big deal, except this is a huge business. There was an 800 foot mall on the top of the Temple Mount, and there were money changers all around the bottom of the Temple Mount, which is to say that a country rabbi wouldn't be that much of a threat, right? If he were to overturn a couple of tables, you just simply call security and throw the bum out, unless we have John's memory. I believe we need all four witnesses to the Passion and we need John's memory as well because raising Lazarus from the dead makes Jesus a new and credible threat. So, as we head closer to Easter, we will do well to consider what happens beside the dry and dusty tomb of Lazarus and the weeping of his friend, to consider that God feels, which is to mean that God hurts when we hurt, that God laughs when we laugh, and God cries when we cry. And also we can remember as we head toward Easter that the nails hurt God too. I hope this has given you a new insight, an old story, and happy, happy Easter. We'll catch you next time.